Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. So we're here today with Louisa Shen, who's a PhD student at Cambridge University. And Louisa has almost finished her PhD on the history of the screen. So you're just about done, Louisa. Absolutely. Yes, (laughs) getting towards the end. Uh, Well, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited um, to talk about uh, your research. Um, So maybe we could just start a little bit with you, like telling us a bit about yourself and your background and like how and why you came to study something like the history of the screen. Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah, I guess kind of my original training was not in kind of history of technology. So so my original training was in kind of um, literature and writing studies. Um, And then after I kind of did my master's, I, I worked in the tech sector for a while. And that kind of got me, I worked as a technical writer, which means I was kind of writing, you know, manuals explaining how software was supposed to work or or how you know users were supposed to operate it and so it was a lot to do with kind of the user experience um, of these kind of systems Um, so I kind of got interested in, in this idea of you know how is computation being mediated to us um, and I'd always been really interested in just art history in general. So kind of, um, I guess, trying to connect the dots in a way, um, I thought, well, if I do go back to school, it would be, you know, interesting thing to try and join up um, these very separate elements of my training. Um, and, and in a way, kind of writing itself and, and graphical and visual representation is really the primary way that we now interact with, you know, our visual devices. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the motivation behind it. So where where do you, when you, when you think about something like the history of, of the screen, like where is that starting point? Like, do you think, like, is there a pre-screen world? Yeah, so I guess my argument is we have to distinguish between two kinds of screens. So kind of the history of screens as such as kind of like fabric or a piece of, you know, um, something draped across a wall or perhaps the wall itself, that has existed kind of for a long time, for millennia, um, if you think about kind of the shadow puppetry um, and kind of Javanese culture. Um, those are kinds of screen technologies. But those screen forms are what I call not electrified or non-electrified screens. Um, And my argument really is that the film screen and these kinds of kind of lantern-based shadow puppet screens um, are separate to what we have today, which is kind of electronic screens, right? So screens that are powered by Um, electricity and therefore you can manipulate what appears on them through electrical signals right and if we look at kind of the genesis of the screen as a device it's actually much more closely related to the light bulb um, than it is to any kind of like film screen even though we think of like film and television you know as as one kind of visual medium in fact the technological genesis is actually quite separate and so I think we can kind of start so so kind of my thesis starts in the 19th century um, when people were doing kind of um, experimental physics trying to figure out um, the relationship between electricity and magnetism and how the electron worked and how light related to all of these things and so they developed these glass tubes um, that were either had kind of noble gases in them or had a vacuum inside. Um, and it was from this kind of kind of vacuum tube um, that you know we developed the light bulb and in turn we started using them as kind of display mechanisms. 
So where, so then, so then, so after kind of like the invention of, I guess, like a, a sort of like light screen, or as you say, electrified screen, like, where do you see kind of like the social applications? Like what, what, what happened next, I guess, like who, who started using it? Yeah, so essentially, because of the way that it was electrified and because it could receive signals, um, this new screen really changed um, the way in which we could see because now we were no longer constrained by the requirement to have light. So, so the screen itself um, was lit up and it could be, it could receive signals um, under conditions, radio wave signals under conditions of no light, right? So one of the first kind of um, implementations of this kind of new screen was for radar during World War II. And um, much of the blitz um, was, you know, they had a, the British had a defense system called Chain Home. Um, and so a lot of these radar screens were being fed um, transmission signals that were being deflected from aircraft. But of course, no one could see the German bombers, right? They were coming in at night um, or they were coming in from kind of beyond the visual horizon. So it was impossible for us to see those um, aircraft with the naked eye. Um, and so because of this kind of um, receptivity to radio wave signals, electromagnetic signals, and the ability to translate into light, we suddenly have a kind of vision that is not bound by problems of you know, distance, time, space, and darkness, right? And if we think about kind of, um, you know, film or photography, um, that's really vastly different because they are non-transmissible mediums, right? They, they don't take electricity. So during the First World War, the kinds of aerial um, recon that we had really depended on kind of someone getting up in a plane and taking photographs, um, bird's eye view photographs. And these would be kind of, you know, developed and then given over to um, the military command. But of course, there's a delay there's always a delay in that kind of process, right? Whereas if you have transmission, then that delay is basically eliminated um, depending on how, how fast you can process signals. It's so interesting. I mean, one, it's really interesting that the stream gets developed as like a military technology because um, it, it seems like there's then a lot of connections then with like the internet itself being like, um, absolutely yeah created by the dod arpanet and then getting and then after being created for the purpose of military then you know being uh shifted into something that could be consumed um in kind of an economic sense for like the masses and i'm wondering too like it's interesting so you're drawing this distinction between like which which makes sense now that i think about it be, even though like i think about like photographs as being something that you see on a screen there is something quite different about photography and screens itself mm -hmm. um and then I so I wonder too then as screens transition from like being used to like for like military purposes and radar to like mass media with like television sets for instance um it seems like what they're supposed to reflect kind of changes too. So like thinking about like radar, it's supposed to show us the real world or like things we cannot see as yes. you kind of said, versus like the television, which is sometimes showing us the real world, but it's all sometimes showing us a, a, a world that has been created for, for, for TV consumption. And, and I, I really liked in your, in your writing, what you said about people feeling like, trapped by the channels like trapped by the tv that you're kind of sucked into it um so, so do you think there's a difference there like i mean it comes kind of out of the same technology but it seems quite different in how they're being used or consumed yeah i i guess maybe from kind of my perspective um if we look at kind of like a history of technology perspective the difference is not as great as we think um Simply because um, what Radar was trying to do was to kind of, I mean, it had a specific purpose in that it was trying to trace um, the progression or the movement of, of an aircraft. Um, and so the priorities there were that it had to be 
incredibly accurate or as accurate as possible, right? Um, and, and that had a sense of urgency because it was a matter of, you know, life or death. Um, in terms of television, um, it's still performing the same kinds of things in that um, what is being broadcast and what the, cam- and the television camera is doing is really sampling certain scenes, right? It's, this is especially true in like kind of documentary or news or journalism, um, less so for um, kind of entertainment programs, which much more resemble kind of film and theatre. But if we think about kind of like real life reporting, um, it's still, you know, the camera is basically sampling a scene. It's taking up as much kind of information or, or light data as possible and relaying that back to us, right? And so in, in a sense, um, the only difference between kind of radar and World War II, which just kind of had a thin line that traced, you know, where where the aircraft was, the, the difference between that kind of surveillance and the kind of TV we have now is basically just one of resolution, right? It's, it's a matter of resolution and bandwidth. I mean, because if, if the technology was available such that they could actually picture um, the aircraft coming in, and I'm sure, I'm sure they would have implemented that. So yeah, it's really just a matter of degrees, um, but the kind of functional or the fundamental function of you know, the electronic screen is still fairly, yeah, fairly consistent across these different uses. Yeah, like it's, it seems like it is interesting because it's like trying to capture the real world as much as possible that right. we can see, but present it to us in a way that, that we can see. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then kind of after the war, when a lot of these systems got switched into kind of surveillance and CCTV, you had, of course, much better cameras, or you, you used cameras instead of kind of like radio wave um, beams, right? And so that made more information possible, you know, vis- visible information made more of that available to whoever was doing the surveillance. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that really interesting in your writing that like the shift after the war in which I guess the radar is a kind of spying, even though we don't really think of it as espionage, but like it is kind of trying to, to see something. Um, but then you you marked kind of a, another shift that overlapped or like was influenced by, intersected with um, like a geopolitical um, shift, which was the event of the Cold War. And I found it just, I love that imagery that you had in your chapter of Americans looking at their neighbors adjusting the TV antenna on the roofs and wondering whether they were trying to get in contact with the Russians um, it just seemed to capture something about the period and yeah. <laughs> the, uh, conspiratorial thinking. Um, Absolutely. Um, but, but so then it was interesting to me because then it's like, because then it's not like, ooh, like spying on the enemy. Then as you kind of said, it's like CCTV and um, you get you get kind of a proliferation of cameras that are supposed to so so one of the images that you had was like the and it, it kind of sits in our mind is like the um, security guard watching yes. the like eight screens that's supposed yeah. to like be able so from one kind of it's almost panopticonish right like yeah I, yeah I call it polyoptic um, because I, I think it's slightly different from the panopticon in that. Uh, Bentham was talking about um, kind of, you know, a different kind of architectural structure. And and I think the camera, uh, with the multiple screens, you have multiple cameras, right? And so the deployments of those cameras could be anywhere. Um, So you're not restricted like the Panopticon was to being, you know, the viewer and the viewed being in one place. Yeah. At one time. Yeah. So that's, I think, somewhat, well, I think that's probably kind of fundamentally different um, in that the viewer and, and the subject are no longer kind of locked into the same place. Yeah. And it's, it seems almost like, because like the panopticon was all about like, how do you create an architecture in the real world that enabled exactly. that type of surveillance? And this is like a tech 
like a technology that allows you to have that position no matter what. And is is it seems like with the cameras, it was interesting how you were saying like with the cameras, they cannot capture everything, but they're trying. And so how do you yes, do yeah. that? Um, yeah. Something where you're, you're totally, but like your physical self is totally seen. And we kind of see that in the physical world with this increasing, especially in the UK, right? Coming from a US context, I'm always like, wow, there's a lot of CCTV. Um, yeah but how we can get to a point where your entire, um, your body in the physical realm is always captured. But it seemed to me then that there was some sort of like connection then between now when like in the digital world, um, like Facebook and Google or all these private corporations or even the state, they're always tracking us. So our physical body can't always be seen, but somehow like our mind or our behavior is still being like captured in the same way. And there's that sort of element of spying so do you see, do you think there's like a connection between like that Cold War shift and what we see now? Yeah, I would say definitely. So, and I mean, even going back to World War II, the kind of attempts um, to see, you know, the enemy aircraft was about seeing a trace of something, right? And so how do we find a trace of this moving aircraft? Because we don't have enough um technological capacity to actually represent it visually so we have a trace and and all these enemy aircraft appeared on the radar screen is basically a straight line um, that fluctuated up and down right so that was the radar graphic um, which is slightly different to kind of what we assume radar graphics to be which you know those round maps um, with the with the you know blips um, flashing up and down that kind of um graphic actually came out much later when when the computation got better and the processes got faster um, and we could handle more data um, so that was definitely coming out of the world uh, cold war um, the initial imagery that came out of world war ii um, kind of radar was just a straight line um, and so it seems like what we have now with kind of, you know, surveillance capitalism, for want of a better word, um, we have gone back to this idea of the trace, right? So everything that we do is logged in some way, right? Um, and, and literally logged because, you know, all software is keeping a log of, you know, how you are interacting with it. And um, this is being passed through the internet. So constantly um you know these internet companies are collecting what are essentially traces of us right um and and they're traces of our movements um of what we look at of what kind of content we're interested in of what we buy um and they're trying to use this these traces to build up a picture of who we are demographically and, and politically and things like that. So definitely, I think there is a huge link between what they were trying to achieve in the first, uh, the Second World War and what it has become today. Yeah, no, it's interesting now that you're saying that I'm thinking like the, like the trace does seem so different than like our physical selves like one of the things that like comes up I think like in news or just like in conversation or like in the zeitgeist is like people are like is my phone listening to me is my camera recording me like we want to know if it's trying to capture our physical selves um and whether or not it is what it is actually capturing is a sort of like abstracted trace which, I mean, but sometimes it is also, you know, it's also capturing our physical selves, but it's it's a trace that is attempting to, um, it, it, yeah, create like a, like a profile of us, but that isn't our physical bodies or voice or, you know, sense, senses somehow. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's more like these traces, it's, it's a kind of sampling, right? It's, it's trying to sample us in as much detail as possible. Um, but of course, um, you know, the sampling is constrained by, you know, how much data we are willing to give, or, or not voluntarily, but you know, in the in the process of using these technologies, how much data we end up giving um, these corporations. So, it's really to do with the fullness of the sampling and the fullness of the traces that 
get collected. But yeah, again, they're always, you know, approximations of the real thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then it seems like then like you mark in, in your writing, like another shift that's technological, not like political um, between um, like screens, like the radar screen, which, or the television screen, which, which just shows us something to a screen that is interactive. And so not like a computer screen in which we can actually interact with it and change what's on it. Um, so does that, so does that, I mean, one, does that, is, is that really like a technological shift? Like when does that technology occur? And then does that interact with or or intersect with like what's going on politically and socially or, or how we're interacting with these screens or like what the technology is enabling? Yeah, so definitely it was, um, I think the shift that I discuss is the idea of the screen being integrated into computation, right? And and again, like you were saying earlier, it is um, another kind of military technology um, that came, well, this time computing came out of the Second World War again. Um, and so what computing did when, because initially computing had nothing to do, it was not a visual medium, right? We, we all think computers, because of the way our devices are presented to us, that computers are visual mediums. They are not. Fundamentally, they are logical, right? So they process numbers and, and um, they process, uh, well, to a more limited extent, letters when programming languages came in, but they are reasoning machines. So they're trying to make certain calculations and decisions um, using a yes or no, one, zero and one kind of binary mode. So that has, the, and the, the oldest kind of cryptographic machines that we see at like Bletchley Park had no screens. They, the output was kind of using paper and punched cards, right? So it was not a visual medium by any means. Um, and then uh, even after the war, most of the computers um, that were in circulation still used, you know, these long bits of paper with punched holes in them um, for programming and for output. Um, So really the first kind of integration of the screen with the computer was in the SAGE program, right, during the Cold War. And this was an attempt to kind of automate all this radar information coming in from, you know, all these sites along the US seaboard. Um, And it was on such a scale that it was not possible for any one or any kind of group of um, people to be able to process that data. Um, So that was the first kind of real integration of kind of the screen with computing. Again, kind of a deeply military um, application. And then when kind of screens really came on board was when computing became more, as it were, democratic or or more commercial. Um, And so the attempt um, to use the screen and to kind of develop these graphical, um, yeah, graphical user interfaces in order to make computing more accessible because programming is hard, right? Programming is a specialist kind of thing that most people are not um, able to do. So it was in that sense then that um, computing became visual or it appeared to become visual in a sense. Um, Yeah, and, and so we have, what happened then was that visuality changed. So because uh, computers are about processes and procedures. Um, so now you have graphics that are interactive. So now you can you can do certain things, right? If you press a button, it executes something. If you click undo, it you know un- re- rewinds the step that you already implemented. So that is the new kind of like visual language that the integration of screens and computing has enabled. Because previously, you know, if you drew something you couldn't undo it it was committed to paper or was committed to some fixed medium um so that is a big change um in like how we understand like visual visuality today and i guess the implication of that 
um, for us um, is that I think we we think we're in control of the devices that we use and, and that we can, you know, perform certain tasks on them. Um, but the trouble is that this is, I think this is much more an illusion than we realize because all computer programs and all kind of user interfaces, um, they both enable certain, you know, actions to be performed, but they also on the other hand, disable other things that you can do. I think we have the sense that yes, technology enables us to do so many things, but it also closes down um, kind of, you know, the options that we have um, and how we might, you know, say do our work, right? And, and there are certain constraints that it imposes even as it opens up new possibilities. No, it's so interesting because I was thinking, like, I really don't like television. Like, I actually didn't have a television as a kid. Um, mm. But um, we but we did have a computer. And I, I, I really dislike watching TV. I do watch TV on my okay. computer, but, like, Netflix in part because I hate, like, that you're just given something and you can't control it. And there is... Uh-huh somehow some more element of um but as you say it's kind of a false sense of of control because you're still and I think that's really interesting around like particularly Apple gets criticized for this um so things and and like the app store or whatever where it's it's not allowing the users of its devices to to change it or code it it's proprietary and it's closed off and so that um limits your ability to um change a device that you technically own um, exactly and yet right like I, I don't I don't code anything but the one time I really noticed this was when they changed the apple books so that whenever you turned it into landscape mode it had like four columns I, I've never been so furious in my life oh. I should be able to code this <laughs> absolutely I mean and and you know because of um this is the kind of argument that was made by um a number of people who are working about on on attention right so um, they design these user interfaces and, and applications in a way that you are kind of compelled to constantly refresh and update and pay attention to the visual medium. Yeah, so definitely um, this idea of kind of, you know, using the computer as somehow you having mastery of the tool. Yeah, I think that's, that's slightly... Um, maybe because of the complexity of the tools that are offered. Yeah, it seems like we are constrained um, much more than we think. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of like you own the screen, but particularly with all of this like cloud-based software too, then you are you don't own the, the computer in a sense, right? Exactly. You just own the window yeah. into the computer. Um, yes. But so it was, so the other thing that was really interesting is, is you talked a, a little bit about the history of like virtual reality. And so we think of virtual reality as something that's like new, like an evolution of the screen. Like first, you know, we have sight and then we have sound and then we'll get to the sense, you know, the next senses, sure. but you know, and Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's Oculus or whatever. Um, but, but you talk about like people were talking about virtual reality in the 1960s um exactly. that, that you know it it wasn't obvious to people that like the visual screen is going to be like what was the widespread adoption with a little bit of audio um and so and and it seems like there's some to, to me it seems interesting because it's sort of like I was thinking this a lot about like the difference between virtual reality and like augmented reality so when I think of like the screen in my computer, I think of entering cyberspace. So there's like a real world, but then when I work, look at the screen, that's like another space. Whereas, and, and virtual reality to, in my mind is sort of like the extreme um, entering of cyberspace in which I have entered a new world. Whereas like augmented reality, so like the Google glasses or whatever, um, seems seems different where you're you're overlaying a screen on what is real life um 
And it seems like there's like a really a resistance to that kind of screen, that kind of AR screen. Like I, I've never seen people hate a product as much as Google Glasses, um, but people really didn't like it. And yet we wear, they're like, oh, it's so invasive. And yet the wearable tech that we wear, like the Apple watches, in many ways are like way more invasive, but is are represented by a screen, which can represent a sort of like screen between cyberspace and real life. Um, so, so do you think, do you think there's something like, or like, what do you think explains why, or, or does anything really explain like why the screen as a visual medium, as opposed to like, like an immersive virtual reality sort of took off? Um, yeah, so I guess if we kind of look at the history of um, the idea of like virtual reality and, and kind of all its associated um, terms, augmented reality, mixed reality, the newest term I think is spatial computing. Um, this kind of goes back to, well, I, I, I hesitate to say one guy, but um, he was kind of one of the most important figures um, in, in this history. So I, Ivan Sutherland um, was at MIT and his, uh, he did his PhD thesis on developing like a graphical drawing program on, on screens for the computer. So that was one of the earliest kind of um, instances of um, the computer becoming more, more and more a visual medium. And so his kind of initial vision for um, virtual reality um, actually involved kind of glasses. Um, so he had these very small um, screens um, turned into glasses. Um, the problem was, and, and the problem that still exists now and the problem that existed then was that to, in order to make um, a believable visual world, you have to engage with other senses, right? Especially your sense of um, space because human visual, visual perception exists in kind of three dimensions and it's really sensitive to bodily movements and also to movement in the surroundings. Um, and so part of kind of the initial early history of VR is such that, you know, people kept getting sick um, and things were not believable because they couldn't render the graphics fast enough to um, accommodate people's natural movements and to accommodate people's natural eye movements as well. Um, and so in some ways, this remains the problem. I mean, if we look at kind of the newer, like Oculus Rift headsets or the Samsung headsets, um, they are still using like LCD screens, right? So it's, it's just that the screen is so close to your eye that it blocks out um, all, other, all other kind of realities that might interfere with the reality presented on screen, right? So you get... Um, as it were, kind of a visual enclosure, um, and, and that is blocking out um, the complicated kind of physical real world. Um, so you get, I guess in current VR, you get a more simplified version that is um, really kind of bracketed out from, um, yeah, bracketed out from kind of the messy, the messiness of the real world. Whereas I think for AR, yeah, I guess with augmented reality, we expect things to be in place correctly um, in, in, in a spatial, 3D spatial dimension. And when we don't get that, we get frustrated. So I think that's the difficulty with, with augmented reality. Although I know a large number of companies like Magic Leap are really trying to work on this problem and trying to you know, map the space in which we are in so that whatever imagery, imagery that they superimpose onto that space seems like it has, um, yeah, seems like it obeys the laws of physics. Yeah. yeah, the other thing that I was thinking about this this difference between the augmented and the, and like the virtual or cyber world is like, th so thinking about things like Google Glasses where like people when we hear about like Google Glasses and like the big thing that, or when Facebook, Facebook is also, I think, trying to develop some sort of augmented reality glass. 
And one of the things like they say that they want those glasses to do is to like do facial recognition of people in the street, presumably then it would be linked to their like Facebook account. So like if you saw someone in like line at the coffee shop, you're like, oh, I wonder who that is. You could like pull up their Facebook account. Um, but obviously there's like huge privacy concerns around this. Um, but it was interesting to me because like when we think about like glasses being deployed in that way, like to be able to like look at somebody and then like identify them and link to their digital identity through something like glasses, you're immediately just like, Ugh, like that's like that reaction is like, ah, that's invasive and like awful. Whereas in, 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 in some sense, it's kind of what's happening. So like, if you think of like CCTV footage that has like facial recognition enabled, right? Like, okay, maybe the like guy behind me, like at the coffee shop wearing Google glasses can't identify me, but like a police officer looking at a screen somewhere else that has access to CCTV footage who can see me at the same coffee shop and, you know, run my face through facial recognition can see me. And I know that, and I've known that for a long time. And yet that seems slightly less weird. Or if the same guy like took a picture, like if somebody took a picture of me and then uploaded it to Facebook and then Facebook's facial recognition ran it through the, and said, oh, this is Alina, here's her account. Again, that seems somehow like, it seems somehow different even though it's the same. So it seems like there's something about like, where the screen is and how we're thinking about what the screen is as overlaid or as a different space and who who is operating it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think it's also about like how much legitimacy do we give the people who are using these systems? I guess, um, if, you know, everyone was suddenly to be wearing Google glasses that could, you know, identify the person at Starbucks. Um, I think it's, it's a question of, you know, what is the purpose of this identification? And, and in some ways, the, the debate around facial recognition now is exactly this, like, how much uh, power are we giving over to the states and law enforcement or private companies, um, especially when we haven't consented to our faces. Well, not we've tacitly consented, I guess, but not actively consented to our faces being put into these systems in the first place, right? And um, I guess one of the concerns also is that um, how do we contend with misrecognition? Because at the moment, um, you know, things like facial recognition, um, machine learning, and computer vision, um, the accuracy isn't so great, although I'm sure they're, they're working on that side of things. But um, the problems of mis- uh, yeah, the problems of misrecognition and misidentification um, and the way in which these data sets are gathered, um, so like, for instance, the, the controversy with Apple's face ID and not being able to recognize Asian faces or kind of, you know, the, the photography um, technology that's supposed to, you know, not being, not being able to pick up, you know, black faces. Um, yeah, it really, the, the trouble is also inherent in the kind of data sets that these machine learning um, systems are being fed. The I, I was thinking, I saw on, on Twitter, it was like one of those viral things where it's, it's the AI facial recognition that's supposed to turn your face into a, like a Renaissance painting. And <sighs> people were pointing out that like, it was only, it was turning everybody into white people. So they mm -hmm. put like Michelle Obama and they put like all these different people and then they came out white. And it was like, oh, no. such an obvious example of, yeah. of, racial, of facial bias. But then you think of like, that's kind of like annoying. Oh, I, you know, I can't use this or, or I'm not being represented correctly in this like um, painting. Um, but then I think uh, Uber was just, I don't know if they were sued or whether they're like, just the employees had lodged a complaint, but that they they have to take a, a a photo to the Uber drivers have to take a photo 
in order to like verify their identity that their like identity matches or something mm-hmm. photo and they were saying that like they couldn't recognize like um like certain like racial um like I think it was probably um black and brown but I don't know specifically um what mm-hmm. the categories were but they were saying basically this is racist technology and we're not able to drive or get validated as drivers because of your racist like Gosh. facial recognition tech yeah. so yeah it seemed to like where it's deployed yeah. Um, Again, it comes back to this idea that you know computers are not naturally a visual medium. So when you feed them visual data in the form of like a digital photograph, um, it has to learn to see, you know, quote unquote, um, and it doesn't. It has to learn to distinguish between, because all all computers do really it is to distinguish between like values in, in, a, in a like digital scene right so is is the top right corner darker than the square next to it or lighter than the square next to it or does it have a different color right and those are all kind of numerical distinctions but um it doesn't have any concept of what a face is right it doesn't have any concept of like um where does the face end and the hair begin, right? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, I guess it's a comprehension problem and it's also a problem of, you know, what is artificial intelligence really? Um, can computers really see, right? Um, yeah, so these are kind of very complicated and tangled. Yeah, yeah that's such a good, that's such an interesting question. Can computers see? Like, of course yes. not, but kind of, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the other things that I thought was like interesting that, that you wrote about is like screens reflect reality. We can interact with the screens often to change like what reality is reflected, such as these, you know, face tuning, making your face a painting. But mm-hmm. the screens themselves can also change reality. So like one example that you gave was like Google Maps. So like when Google mm-hmm. gives you directions or shows you traffic patterns, it is also affecting that traffic. Um, and I think there's quite, I mean, when Waze, the, the traffic map Waze was supposed to give you like alternate um, uh directions and it ended up causing massive traffic problems because all of a sudden <laughs> suburban streets that were never getting any traffic were like what is this like back-to-back traffic Absolutely. Um, but then as you also point out then like remote drones um are it's essentially like warfare is being fought via screen right so like quote-unquote mm-hmm. soldiers sitting in utah could be operating a drone anywhere in the world that is, I mean, literally killing people from a screen. Yes. Um, so do you think engaging with the world in, in that way, in that like kind of di- dynamic way changes something about how we interact with it? Or is, is that, a, you know, is that fundamentally changing something, especially it's kind of, it's so different than the, the radar and, and yet it is kind of a continuation and it's the same. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is just a more kind of sophisticated, like, I guess, kind of drone warfare is just really a more sophisticated continuation of, of radar. Um, yeah, the, the screen problem is an interesting one in that, in, in a way, a lot of the capabilities that we have in our screens um, like say for example touch input or like you know pedometers or you know like google maps things like that they're really the product of kind of a sensors being embedded like into these devices that we now carry around right and and they're also the product of b kind of the infrastructures that we don't see right the hidden infrastructures um, the data the data centers the computational processes um the kind of wireless internet connections um those are the things the sensors and infrastructures that enable kind of the visual representation of a world of the world in a way that is really kind of different to how we usually think about you know a picture right because a picture if we think about kind of like just a normal non-screen picture um a painting for example that engages really just our visual sense, right? Um, and, and maybe our spatial sense. But now with these sensors, 
um, we're feeding all kinds of sensory data back into them and we are expecting to get kind of a visual representation out of it, right? Um, and so the way we relate to the world seems to be more and more compressed into this one modality. Um, and, and also audio as well, but audio kind of, audio transmission actually preceded visual transmission because te technologically it's easier to implement. But now we have a lot of things that are being compressed into say this audio and visual modality. Um, so it, in some ways it becomes like an impoverishment of our experience of the world, right? So you, you could well, you know, instead of using Google Maps to plot out your route, you could well say, well, I think um, there might be, you know, a traffic jam up ahead based on the cars that I'm observing kind of going past me. But we don't do that anymore. There's this kind of a disengagement from kind of, you know, acts of observing by using our senses, right? Or, and, and for example, like, um, there's this reliance, say, on like weather forecast apps. But I mean, there is, you know, you can look outside the window and see that, oh, the sky looks gray, it's likely to rain. But we kind of, our instinct is to go to see, see like, oh, it's there's a 40% chance of rain at 2 p.m. Um, on, on my Apple Weather app, right? And so I think there's, yeah, there's a certain kind of pushing or this kind of, like, human engagement into the world, into... Um, like a computational processing, right? So we, we're taking all the sensory data and forcing the computer to process it and to give us something back through which we navigate the world, right? And so in this, I guess kind of my, maybe the, the summation of my argument is that um, screens are really now guidance systems, right? They're guidance systems for us in order to navigate the world. Um, whereas before, I guess in World War II, they were just guidance guidance systems for, oh, we need to kind of get into a bunker to avoid being bombed. I guess sort of now then, so that's kind of like, you know, the history of the screen, but thinking towards like what happens next, I think it's quite interesting because you have these two kind of pushes or predictions. Like one is like the Mark Zuckerberg Oculus Rift, like, I think he said, you know, the next step is obviously going to be virtual reality, like, right, we're, we're moving from visual, well, audio to visual to like more senses and complete senses. Um, but the other direction that seems to be happening is the, um, like, uh, sometimes called the Internet of Things. So like Amazon mm -hmm. Alexa or Google Home, which are, there are no screens. Uh, it, it is a device, but it's entirely audio, and yet it is like running a computer. Um, and I was thinking it's kind of interesting because those those home devices, the audio home devices, are screenless, and yet they are far more integrated into like our reality in a way that kind of like a sort of like augmented reality. Um, mm -hmm. And like I was thinking like. It's interesting because like the the like Amazon Alexa, for instance, can do things that you can do on Amazon.com, right? Like I can go onto Amazon.com and be like, okay, I want to buy like groceries, please deliver to me. And I like fill it all out. Um, <laughs> but you can also say out loud, Alexa, buy groceries. And then Alexa will say, okay, I'm buying groceries, right? And then groceries show up at your door. But I have trouble visual, like I visualize Alexa's like internal processing and computers when she's doing that so differently than I do when I'm thinking about like filling out my like grocery list on amazon.com, right? Even though it's probably the same software, so something about it seems different and almost more human um, in, yes. in a sense, um, the voice assistants. And I think that was the point of the movie, her, you know, like somehow when you take yeah. away the screen, it becomes like a person, even though it's, it's a computer. Um, so, so do you think, so do you think that there, like, do you predict a movement in one way? Do you think it'll be like VR or voice assistant or, 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 or is it going to be both a mix of both? Um, and do you think there'll be some impl implication for that going forward into the, the future of screens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess kind of my last chapter, which is a very speculative one, um, to be fair, um, is it, it kind of, you know, makes the case that, 
um, we're going to enter into what I call like a post-screen world, right? And, and you made the comment that, you know, Alexa seems more human. And, and partly that's to do with the voice, but also partly because Alexa is a physical object, right? And, and it's, it's sort of like, a, like an ornament that you, you would have um, in your home. And so it seems, as it were, more real um, or more physical than what like a 2D screen would give you. Because um, all 2D, 2D things are abstractions from, from the real world, right? So they, they're simplifications in, in that regard. And so a lot of things get lost in that simplification, um, especially for kind of 3D visual creatures like us. So my argument is that actually, sorry, Mark Zuckerberg, um, I don't think VR is going to take off. <laughs> I don't even think AI is going to take off. Um, what, what I think will really happen um, once the kind of computing power is in place and once we have a better way to, as it were, control light, um, what I think will happen is we're going to get holograms, right? Um. Um, and there is a significant body of research being done around how to create kind of 3D light objects, right? So, so these things have the properties of kind of Im images that you can manipulate, turn on and off, you know, make them do things, but also they hang about in free space and in a way that they like ambient light doesn't interfere with them right so this is the very kind of star wars fantasy um <laughs> uh, thing coming about but i think really um because in a way the next kind of revolution i guess in computing hardware as well will be kind of optical processing um it's likely that you know in maybe 50 years from now we're going to have like, you know, 3D images rather than 2D images. Thanks so much again to Louisa for coming on to this episode of the Anti-Dystopians to talk about the history of the screen. If you've enjoyed listening to the Anti-Dystopians, please feel free to take a moment to rate us on the Apple Podcast Store wherever you get your podcast. It really does help us reach new listeners. To prevent the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.